there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Now for my second talk, it's the same title, The Omnipotence of Love. And I suppose one of the most difficult things to get across when we talk about love is that it is not a feeling. You may have loving feelings for somebody, but that is not the great principle of sacrificial love that the Bible teaches. It is perfectly natural for us to have loving feelings for some people and perfectly natural for us to have anything but loving feelings for most people. But God wants us to learn to love anyone with whom we have anything to do. Luke 6:32. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. I often have letters from women describing all the reasons why they can't love their husbands. And usually the sum total of the description makes me quite convinced that this man must be a real crumb bum. And of course, it's impossible for his wife to love him. But my answer to that kind of a letter is, it appears that your husband is your enemy. What does the Bible tell us to do about our enemies? If your husband is treating you as though he were your enemy, then you have to treat him as though he were your enemy, which means you have to love him. That's what it means. And that is a radical reversal of our natural inclination, and it certainly is not what the world is telling you to do. We are being fed a load of garbage constantly. It is coming at us, bombarding us from all sides. Love yourself. You've got to learn to love yourself before you can love anybody else. And that is a hideous distortion of what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, love one another as I have loved you. And he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You do not need to learn to love yourself. We all have lots of proof that we love ourselves. If somebody steps on your toes, figuratively or literally, what's your response? Well, maybe not verbal anger, but you're upset, you're hurt. And you may be very angry at a person for being so careless as to step on your toes. And that's proof that we love ourselves. We protect ourselves. We eat and sleep and do all the things that are necessary to remain alive. But also, 
there are many proofs that we love ourselves. So let's not kid ourselves by saying, I can't love my husband because he's treating me like an enemy. God asks us to do the impossible, just as he asked the man to stretch forth his hand. Now the man willed to do his will. And God asks us to do things which may not be so desirable as getting a, a withered hand healed, but it is God's command. And if it is God's command, then he has promised to enable us. I think it was Hudson Taylor who put it so succinctly, God's command is his enabling. He will let you, he will enable you to do it, to do the impossible. Jim learned to love his wife even when they were hating each other. Mrs. G learned to love her husband when they were still hating each other. Point one, learning to love. And of course, the definitive passage on this subject is 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And there's another modern translation, which is even more blunt than that. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing but noise. Nothing but noise. And I ask your prayers that I will not be nothing but noise on the radio, that God will enable me to love as he wants me to love and to live as he wants me to live. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all, my, all I possess to the poor and broadcast on, on the radio station in Omaha every day of my life and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And then Paul goes into a very specific description of the kind of love that he's talking about, which is not feelings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not natural to be patient when the temptation is to impatience. Love is patient, but I am not. Elizabeth Elliot is not naturally patient. This cuts across my nature to be told that I am to be patient when the temptation is impatience. Love is kind. There are many times when I am anything but feeling kindly. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. We live in a very rude culture today. Any of you who are my age, I'm sure would agree with me that the rules, the, the old rules of courtesy, which we all understood, although we might not always have obeyed them, but we understood them, they're not even heard of today. My husband, whom you just saw up here on the platform a few minutes ago, helps me into, the, into my chair at the table when we don't have any company. That's courtesy. He is a southern gentleman. It just blows my mind to see the rudeness 
of young people today who have not been taught. Of course, there are exceptions. And a Christian family certainly should be one in which courtesy is one of the major rules. And my parents, of course, taught us table manners. And young people today would say, well, you know, what difference does it make whether you chew with your mouth open or whether you put your elbows on the table or not? Well, it makes a lot of difference to the rest of the people. Just think how it looks. If you're chewing like this with a mouthful of spinach or something and talking to everybody, or you, you're so tired, you've got your elbows on the table and you're shoveling it in, how does it look? How does it make everybody else feel? It makes everybody else feel rotten, and the whole thing turns into something rotten. Love is not rude. And notice that Jesus observed the rules of courtesy, which were the custom in his time. And when he was received for dinner at the home of one of the Pharisees, he missed the normal courtesy which a guest should expect. He said to his host, you didn't give me any kiss. You didn't have my feet washed. He missed those little courtesies. And I think he misses the courtesy that you and I ought to be giving to each other. Love is not self-seeking. The minute we ask the question, but what about my needs? We're already in trouble. If you, have, if you work a full-time job, you have fellow workers to whom you are to be courteous, whose needs you are to consider. You have a boss to whom you must be courteous, whose needs you are to consider. And go the second mile. Do what he didn't ask you to do. Work overtime. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Ever been tempted to do that? When Lars and I had been married just a couple of months, he said something that hurt me. Can you imagine? That sweet man, he's so polite and so courteous and just so gracious at the book table and all that, but I don't know what he said. I've completely forgotten it now, for which I'm grateful, but he, did, he said something that hurt me. And I went to bed that night, and some of you women can identify with this. I was lying stiff as a board, as far as I could get on my side of the bed, and I did not want him to touch me by so much as a fingernail. Because it was his fault, you know. He did this, and he was the one that was supposed to apologize, wasn't he? Because he knew the Bible just as well as I did, that you're not to let the sun go down on your wrath. And of course, what he said to me was out of his wrath, but of course now I was full of wrath because he had not yet apologized. So I'm lying there, praying and saying, Lord, when is he going to apologize, and when is he going to realize, and just chewing over in my mind, keeping a record of wrongs. Not only that thing that he said to me, but what he said to me the previous Tuesday, and that other thing that he did, and making a long list of records of wrongs. And while I'm waiting for him to apologize, what did I hear? <laughs> Absolutely oblivious to the fact that I'm lying there stiff as a board with the tears running into my ears. <laughs> Snoring away, perfectly peaceful. I was furious. Love is not angry. Well, of course, thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit 
reminded me that I was the one at fault at that point. Whether he was at fault or not was none of my business. I better get straightened out before the Lord. And so I got out of bed, I went into another room, and I opened my Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. And I put my name, Elizabeth, in the place of the word love. So if you've got your Bible and you're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, try that sometime. Elizabeth is patient. Elizabeth is kind. She does not envy. She's not boast. She does not boast. She is not proud. She's not rude. She's not self-seeking. She's not easily angered. Elizabeth keeps no record of wrongs. Well, it was a screaming farce, wasn't it? <laughs> to be saying these things in the presence of God and putting my name in place of that word love. Elizabeth does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. She always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I have to start by loving that person who has hurt me. And that has to be a willed choice. It is not a feeling. If I'm going to wait until I feel good about that person or until I've forgotten all about the awful thing that person did to me, it's going to be a very long wait. And I don't know that I have that much time. I don't know that I have the next second. As my husband will say sometimes when somebody calls and says, well, how's Elizabeth? He'll say, she could go any time. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> any one of us could go any time. Who do we think we are to say, oh, well, I'll, I'll feel better about him next week, you know, so I'll do something sweet for him next week, but I'm not going to do it now. If I am going to start by learning to love myself, it is going to be a full-time job, and I don't have that much time, and I am never going to learn to love my enemy. And I am not going to learn to will against my feelings and will to stretch forth my hand, will to love that person, will to get out of that bed and go and get on my knees and say, Lord, forgive me, and you deal with Lars. He is none of my business. The love of which Jesus speaks can never be directed toward oneself. The love of which Jesus speaks can never be directed toward oneself. What is this nonsense about learning to love ourselves? Well, I can never learn to love somebody else until I learn to love myself, because nobody ever loved me, and I've never learned to love myself, and I have a very poor self-image, and I really hate myself. And so I have to work through all those awful feelings, and maybe someday, way down the road, I'll be able to start loving other people, because I will have learned to love myself. Nothing could be more diametrically opposed to the message of Scripture than that foolishness. Jesus said in John 15, 12, Love each other as I have loved you. He does not say, Love yourself as I have loved myself. He doesn't say that. We are to give up our right to ourselves. Those are the conditions of discipleship. The very first one, give up your right to yourself. 
my right to an apology. It's true that person offended me. That person really did sin against me. Maybe somebody went off with your husband. Maybe somebody went off with your wife. Maybe a business partner ruined your business so that for the rest of your life you're going to be in debt. Terrible things happen, don't they? God allows terrible things to happen. But he continues to say, love each other as I have loved you. If I want to be his follower, I have to give up my right to myself. That's the first condition. The second is to take up the cross. And the third is to follow. And Jesus made those very clear when he was speaking to his disciples. I think I have a ref reference here for you note takers. I certainly appreciate it when people are taking notes. Yes, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And that word scares the living daylights out of us, doesn't it? Oh, we're in denial. Jesus said, that's where you have to start. You've got to deny yourself. Forget about yourself. Give up your right to yourself. Just turn it all over to me. And secondly, you will not be able to do the second thing if you haven't done the first. Take up the cross. I can't do that if I'm loaded with myself. I have to empty my hands and take up the cross and follow. Each depends on the other. Three, number three depends on number two. Number two depends on the first thing, which is to give up your right to yourself. Now, if impatience is my nature, I have no excuse to say, well, Lord, that's really the way you made me. You know, I'm just an impatient person. I can't be patient, not like her. Oh, she's such a patient person. No, you got the withered hand, and he says, you stretch it out. You be patient. Love is very patient. Patience, in other words, must be my choice. My feeling is impatience. That's emotion. My choice is patience. That is obedience. A willed, deliberate act of obedience. Love is kind. If unkindness is the treatment that I have received, love is the treatment that I must give in kindness to that person who has been unkind. Unkindness is the treatment. Love is the response. Envy, love does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. And when you envy somebody who has what you don't have, what is, what is the actual cause of that envy down deep in your heart? I should have had that. I deserve that. She didn't deserve that. And it's a refusal to rejoice with those who rejoice. If someone has received a great honor, or somebody has won the lottery, or somebody has got the husband that you were hoping to get, you are full of envy, and it makes you angry, and it makes you mad at God because God didn't give it to you. He gave it to the wrong person. And the command is that we must love. Never mind how you feel about that person. What are you going to do about it? Feelings versus 
act. Boastfulness, pride, rudeness. If rudeness was the treatment you received, what is the treatment that you are to give in reciprocation? Courtesy, kindness, thoughtfulness. Love is not easily angered. Doesn't say that it's never angered, because the more you love a person, the more angry you may feel when you know that that person is sinning. But be very careful that you're angry and not sinning. I was angry and sinning as I lay in bed that night. What is the antidote to anger? A gentle and quiet spirit. You're not looking at a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. There is not one atom of gentleness and quietness in my natural makeup. It's just not there. But Paul, Peter says that a thing very precious in the sight of God is a gentle and quiet spirit. And in the context, he's talking about women who, women who are married to men who are not Christians or who are not acting like a Christian. And he says this amazing thing, they may be one without a word being spoken. And the worst thing we wives can do is to try to be our husband's moral custodians. We are not answerable to God for our husband's sins. We are to submit, we are to love them, we are to have a gentle and quiet spirit, and in the case that Peter's talking about, if the man is not a Christian or not acting like a Christian, keep your big mouth shut. He may be one without a word being spoken. There's no guarantee. He still stands before God with the freedom to choose to disobey. Every one of us was created with the freedom to choose to disobey. But the Holy Spirit wants to help us. He wants to give us joy. He wants to release us. He wants to give us freedom. He wants us to learn to love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It is a bitter spirit that keeps a record of wrongs. And I feel quite sure that there's somebody here this morning who is harboring bitterness because somebody did something which is, in your mind, unforgivable. And you are waiting for that person to come crawling so that you will have the pleasure of seeing that person say, I'm sorry. And they may never do that. And we don't have to wait until they do that because Jesus didn't say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who apologize. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who did that unforgivable thing, those who trespassed against us. It's real. It's actual. It happened. But what is the otherworldly approach? What is this omnipotent love? Well, it's the love of Christ. He didn't wait until you and I confessed our sins before he went to that cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. And while that person is still ruining your life, making your life miserable, encroaching on your property, perhaps. Recently, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was talking about 
a little story that I'd learned from a, about a Chinese farmer who found somebody encroaching on his property. And as a Christian, he went to the elders and they got down on their knees and they said, Lord, what shall we do about this? It's wrong, it's unjust, it's illegal. And the answer was, pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them that hate you. And if somebody asks you to go two mile, go one mile, go, make, go two miles. If somebody hits you on the right cheek, give him the left cheek. If somebody takes away your coat, give him your cloak. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's outrageous. But that is what omnipotent love is about. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And my assignment for every day is to learn to love. And I'm still in the process. Don't suppose for a moment that you're looking at someone who has arrived. I'm still in the process. We are to win by loving. Now, I have a sequel from the lady whose story I wrote, gave, I gave to you earlier this morning. The lady who walked in and found her husband sitting on the sofa looking at the TV. Two years went by, and in July of this year, she heard me tell that story on my radio program, so I'm sure some of you heard it too. She said, I chuckled while listening to you speak about me. This was new to me. I never felt I did something right worth repeating. I never felt I did something right that was worth repeating. Then I thought I owed it to you to let you know where I was today after almost two years. And I confess, ladies and gentlemen, that my heart sank when I saw her name on the outside of that envelope. Because I just, being the pessimist that I am by nature, I thought, well, you know, it was wonderful back then and it probably lasted for two or three months, but I wonder what in the world has happened now. And my worst fears were confirmed as I began to read. Well, I started, as you know, already very good, but I did not go much ahead. There were a few problems. One, I did not know how to treat somebody who is just the opposite of Jesus, like Jesus. I didn't know how to treat somebody like Jesus who is just the opposite of Jesus. Two, I even did not know how to treat the real Jesus as if he were here. Plus, I had my own character flaws like fear, weakness, confusion, lack of courage, shyness, and hunted by my past sins that I thought God could not forgive ever. Despite the above-mentioned problems, I tried to treat my husband the best I could. But after some time, I felt that I give and give and give, and I don't get anything in return. There's that wicked impulse. What about me? What about my needs? Why should I always have to be the one that apologizes? Why do I have to be the one that always goes the second mile? Why do I have to be the one that submits? So she goes on to say sometimes it worked and sometimes it did. Most times it didn't. The harder I tried, the situation became worse. We did not fight. Instead, there was silence between us that was killing me. Any of you have a husband who kills you with silence? In order to not see his sour face, I tried to stay away from him. He did not seem to be suffering at all. After all, I still gave him dinner and washed and cleaned and earned money and suffered silently rejection, getting more frustrated and angrier until this last winter I started thinking that certainly God doesn't want me to suffer. Or does he? Think about that one. 
Then one day I had a serious talk with God. I told him my story. Asked him to do, asked him what to do. Stay in this marriage or leave. Just one condition I put. Please don't let the answer be in my head or some kind of hints or whisper in my ear. I need loud and clear answers so I can understand. I am dumb. I waited. Two days went past. On the radio, I listened to Dr. Dobson describe a woman exactly to the smallest details in my situation. I even thought for a second he was describing me and asked him, should she stay or leave? My ears went up, and I stopped breathing to make sure I heard right. Dr. Palau, Luis Palau, said, stay and pray. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> I've done enough praying. I'm, it's time for me to get out of here. God did it again. I cannot imagine an answer louder or clearer. That day, I listened three times to focus on the family just to make sure, <laughs> just to make sure it was not my imagination. So I stayed and prayed. In my heart, I did not believe that anything would work. Nothing worked so far. Why should this time work? But I obeyed, prayed and prayed and prayed, read my Bible, listened to you in the morning and others. God gave me the words and the thoughts that I needed for that day, and I felt God with me all the time, helping me, supporting me. I sang hymns. I waited silently on the Lord, memorized Bible verses. That helped me to calm down and sleep, because I could not sleep either. So I prayed, Lord, heal my relationship with my husband. Two years ago, I had prayed that God would heal my marriage and prevent separation. This time, though, instead of working harder and harder, I prayed harder and harder. Finally, God gave me the message. The next step, ask your husband, what would it take for him to love you? So I did. One day, with a low voice, with the usual distance from him, about five feet, I put my question to him. What would it take for you to love me? Suddenly, after a pause, he looked at me and exploded with the loudest voice, Shut up! Close your mouth! Zip it! And left. I froze. Inside, my heart churned. He had never talked to me like that. I was hurt to the core, but I swallowed my hurt. I was on a mission. I did not ask the question to feel good with the answer. Of course, I wished that that would end all my problems immediately. I needed to know what was not working between us. So I ran his answer through my head again and again. Shut up, close your mouth, zip. And remember, she had asked God for a loud answer. <laughs> I ran his answer through my head again and again, and to my amazement, I heard tremendous pain in his voice, almost like a cry or a pleading. The pain I had not sensed that much, even in myself, ever. So I forgot. I put aside my hurts and started searching and analyzing the source of that pain. It clearly was pointing on my talk. 
I felt broken. Did I cause so much pain? How could I? So I stopped talking completely and started thinking, only answering him when he asked for something in the shortest way. After all, I was determined to do God's will, whatever it took, forgetting myself, my feelings, and my wants. Still hurting, but I trusted God and received strength from him. After a few months, my husband came closer to me. I guess he felt safer, and I started talking. But this time, the only things I said were praising him and thanking him for the smallest thing that he did. And she puts five exclamation points after that. I have just noticed what I wrote. Isn't that how we treat Jesus? Praising him and thanking him for the smallest thing that he did? And I had to go around and around to find it out for myself, and I felt as though I had invented it. Sorry, Elizabeth, I'm a very slow learner. You can see that, but still, this was not the end of the road to happiness. Although I was still doing the right thing, but it did it with resentment and expectation that he would love me. After all, I had worked so hard. I, don't I deserve his love? But he did not love me. I was solving my problem my way instead of God's way. I did not stop there. I prayed and prayed and listened to God, to you, to Dr. Dobson, to Chuck Swindoll, and others not mentioning reading the Bible every day, and sang hymns. Then one day the message came, empty yourself. Does that sound like the first condition of discipleship? Give up your right to yourself. At first it did not make a whole lot of sense to me, but I worked on it. Consequently, I released myself from the case and let God take care of the relationship. I continued praising and thanking him as an outsider. I was not in charge, but doing my duty the best I could. And I did not expect love, or even if he remembered that I existed. So I became free. I was not worrying, nagging, or wanting anything. I did not care. It was not my business anymore. I did my duties at work and home, spent time with my church friends, called my own friends, went to museums, parks, did aerobics, rode bicycles, and became a happy person. My vigor came back, and... She puts a big long dash. My husband fell in love with me. I guess what I had, some people would call attitude. Almighty God in his mercy showed to me my stumbling block and helped me to overcome it. Indeed, to my surprise, after taking my eyes from myself, I found many excellent qualities that my husband had, and I had never seen them before. What a shame. I could have had all the past 35 years enjoying my marriage. And then she tells, she refers to a little story that I've told many times about my dear Canadian mom, one of my spiritual mothers, Mrs. Cunningham, up in Alberta. And she and I were widowed right about the same time, I, I in Ecuador and she in Canada. And about four years later, we got together hadn't seen each other for all those years. And we were talking about what it's like to be a widow. And Mom Cunningham said to me that she was Scottish and she always called me Betty. And it was always Betty Deer. She was just, to me, 
the very icon of holiness, just the most perfect Christian I've ever known in my life. But she looked at me and she said, Oh, Betty dear, there are so many things that you think of that you should have done for him, but you didn't do them. And oh, I thought of so many things that I should have said to him, and I never said them. And I said, Lord, why didn't you show me? And he said, because you weren't ready to be shown. I want to be ready to be shown. And Mrs. G, after all that praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, was ready to be shown. The omnipotence of love. Never a question again. What about my needs? How come he doesn't love me as Christ loved the church? What husband in human history has ever loved his wife as Christ loved the church? Of course, the answer is none, because we're sinners, desperately in need of a savior. Not once back when I was four years old and got down on my knees and said, Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be my savior. That's valid. But there isn't a day that goes by that I don't need a savior. He must save me from myself. Save me from all my sins, including the sin of lovelessness. She says, but as your friend in Canada said, I was not ready. Today I'm stronger, wiser, freer. My husband loves me and can't have enough of me. We laugh together. We talk together. We are both free individuals who enjoy each other and both feel secure in the Lord. I have an excellent husband, a real man, and that's in all capital letters. He got a job. He works 70 to 80 hours a week. I thank God for him every day. Try that if you have found yourself in that position. So point one was learning to love. Point two is the imperative. And that has already been covered again and again in my talks. But the imperative of Matthew 5, 20 is this. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sober us? Unless my righteousness exceeds that of the world and the so-called Christians and my neighbors who are telling me what I ought to do and that counselor to whom you may be paying a very big fee to give you a whole lot of stuff that is contrary to this book. Think of these words. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, as you know, were the most religious people. Religious in the sense of being very specific to obey every jot and tittle of the law. And they couldn't stand Jesus and his freedom and his love. But if you don't exceed that righteousness, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3.10, another solemnizing, sobering scripture. 
John says, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We are not children of God if we refuse to love. Remember, it's in this very same epistle in 1 John that he reminds us that we may sin. And he's not saying that that cancels out all possibility of heaven. But what do we have to do? Confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Have you been angry? Have you been bitter? Have you been impatient, unkind, boastful, proud, envious, rude, self-seeking, easily angered, keeping a record of wrongs, delighting in evil? There's a really horrible, twisted, fleshly desire in me from time to time, to delight in evil. Just think, well, I'm glad she did that. That's the kind of person I expect her to be. Do we delight in evil? Have we learned to rejoice with the truth, to always protect, always trust, always hope, and always persevere? And that's what I see in Mrs. G's testimony. Trust, hope, perseverance. Pray and pray and pray and pray. And I get letters every once in a while from somebody who says, now, I have a huge problem, and I don't want you to give me any scripture verses. <laughs> and all I can say to them is, you, you've written to the wrong lady, because what Elizabeth Elliot has to, has to say about anything is not worth that much unless it lines up with what God has to say. What does God have to say? I can't give you anything but scripture verses. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't write and say that wives ought to submit to their husbands. Can you imagine me coming up with something like that? <laughs> that is the very last thing in the world that would ever be compatible with my nature. I am aggressive. I am an initiator. I am an arguer. I was a debater. There is nothing gentle and quiet in my nature. But God wants to transform us. And you know that love is the transforming power in the world. If you love me, Jesus said, do what I say. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.